Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. towards annual conference, we had adopted the theme of annual conference this year, which is go forth and make disciples, which is a paraphrase of the Great Commission, which we've already done in our worship series. But today we jump almost all the way to the end of the scriptures for Revelation. And I remember this week as I was joking around with one of my friends, I said, oh, I got to go home and, and do a little bit of work on my sermon. And they said, oh, what are you preaching on? And I said, Revelation. And they were like, why? Are you mad at your church? And I said, no, I'm not mad at my church at all. I said, there's some good stuff in Revelation. And as they had pointed out to me, there's a lot of weird stuff in Revelation too. And there is. There's a lot of weird, funky stuff in there. One of the favorite things I like to do over the years with confirmands is to read from the book of Revelation and have them try to draw what I'm reading. So when you say, okay, I need you to draw a beast, and it's got nine heads, and there's a horn on each head, and then there's all these crowns, and they're like, I'm, I'm lost. I don't know what this is supposed to look like. And I'm like, that's the point, that it's an incredibly difficult text with this hyper-visual description that is hard for us to wrap our minds around, and some of us get so caught up in the weirdness that we never get to today's passage However, I suspect that there are those of us who are very familiar with today's passage. And one of the things that has made me most familiar with this passage is that this is one of the traditional texts that is read at the graveside of a funeral. That this is a text that we share when people have been confronted by the harsh reality of death, usually of a loved one, someone that they respected and that they loved, and for whom they had a great depth of care. And in the wake of death, when there is this huge rending of the heart and this hopelessness that can come because you are mourning and overwhelmed with pain and suffering from the reality of death, we read these words to remind people that death is not the end. And in the great mystical working of God almost six months ago when we planned this worship series and we started to figure out what, what it was that we were going to say, and we had planned for this Sunday to read this text, we could not have envisioned what would happen in our glorious commonwealth in Virginia Beach this past week. We would not know that just as we are here in the glorious safety and beauty of Crozet, our siblings in United Methodism down in the Elizabeth River District, which encompasses Virginia Beach, are suffering and mourning today. They are in shock and they are in fear, and many of my colleagues are wrestling with what to say to people who have once more come face to face with human sinful inclination embodied in hatred and in violence, and it ends up causing death and unimaginable suffering. And as we reflect on this, Perhaps you, like I, think to yourself, how can this happen again? How can once more we be confronted with someone who is so broken and fractured, so full of despair, hopelessness, that it manifests in hatred and violence like this? We saw it in Virginia Tech. We saw it at the Pentagon in Arlington. We have seen countless times when this kind of sinful inclination 
is unleashed into our incredible commonwealth, our state, where we continue to grow and experience joy and community and the body of Christ. These things juxtaposed don't seem possible. How is it that sin does this time and time again? We wrestle with this and we struggle with this today as we continue to shower these persons in prayer. We continue to reach out, not only as our local churches down there are doing that, but as our district down there is doing that and our annual conference, it's part of connectionalism. We do this because we recognize that in the midst of suffering, God sends us hope. And when we are tasked with such a monumental duty as making disciples, which in and of itself is overwhelming, we are now forced to think about how do you do that? We exist in a world where the ramifications of violence are so tangible. You can see pictures and footage of these events happening. And as it is disseminated through the internet and across radio waves and airwaves, as people encounter these things, they think to themselves, what is the point of Christianity? They listen to us time and time again as the church read them scriptures, preach to them and teach them about hope in Jesus Christ and this gospel that we have about forgiveness. And they think to themselves, a lot of good it does because the world is still filled with hatred and violence and death. So what is the point? And we today are reminded through this gift of this revelation of John of Patmos, we are reminded that this is the point. This is the reason. Now, we could be offering them a little bit of an inclination to become Christians because of fear. Fear is a powerful motivator for some of us. Growing up, my motivation, my fearful motivation was that I didn't want to disappoint my parents. There was nothing worse than having my parents yell at me and clearly be disappointed in me. That was a big deal for me. My sister could have cared less if anybody was disappointed in her. She was more concerned that you were going to ground her and make her stay with the rest of the family for a week. That's not, that, that was my sister's fear, that she would have to abide in our presence for that long. And so fear worked in different ways for us. We weren't strangers to fear. In fact, neither of us were strangers to the concept of fear in Christianity because it was the habit of our family growing up that once a month we would travel down 95 and 64 down to Deep Creek, Chesapeake. And there we would stay with my grandmother and my grandfather. And inevitably on Sunday morning, we would attend their church, Brentlock's Baptist Church of the Southern Baptist Convention. And they had perfected a certain brand of fear down there. In fact, sometimes people say, you know, do you know anything about hellfire and brimstone? And I'll go, yes. And every now and then someone thinks that I've preached a little hellfire and brimstone. No. I know hellfire and brimstone. And I think that I might be able to do it if the need ever arose, but I have not yet done it. I've made some people squirm in their seats. I've made some people, frankly, uncomfortable. I've dropped a few Bibles on pulpits and scared people. But I have never preached a hellfire and brimstone yet. And part of that is that I don't really think that fear is a good long-term motivator. Eventually, fear kind of peters out. You can only hold people captive to fear for so long. Now, there are denominations that are strongly fueled by the concept of if you don't turn and embrace Jesus Christ, then you could burn in hell. 
If you don't make disciples of Jesus Christ, then those people will in turn burn in hell. That is not the modus operandi of the United Methodist Church. Grace is such a central part of who we are and how we understand our God that after a while, it doesn't resonate the same way as fear. What does resonate because of our incredible doctrine of grace is that God is promising us something incredible. And this is what we have to share. It's not us standing out on street corners going, repent now for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not us telling people that we are in and if you want to be in and not burn forever, then you need to come and follow us. We're not trying to motivate people by fear. We are reminding them about the gift that God has given all of us. And the book of Revelation testifies to that. After all the weirdness, the visions, the allegorical visions that are in there, all of a sudden we get this moment of incredible beauty and clarity. And John of Patmos describes this vision that he has been given. And this is the vision that he gives to all Christendom. That suddenly, after all of the pain and suffering of human existence, after all the countless generations of sin manifesting itself in evil, and the consequences of that being pain, suffering, and death, all of a sudden, these things pass away. They themselves see death. Death has its own death. They pass away, and according to the scriptures, they are no more. These are the words that so many yearn to hear today as they are suffering in the wake of violence. That one day this shall stop. That we will no longer have to listen to the dreadful accounts, to the fear that people felt, to those who, for completely irrational and illogical reasons, were spared while others were taken by force and violence. That the day will come when these words are manifest and mourning and crying and death and pain are no more. What greater promise and motivation for becoming a disciple than to receive that as our truth? This is what we yearn for. I couldn't begin to tell you how many funerals I've done. I couldn't begin to tell you how many times I have read this particular passage standing at a graveside as people openly weeped for the loss of their loved one and willing with all that my voice could carry to remind them that when the tears have stopped, when there is no longer any hydration with which to create tears, when there is quietness in the wake of death, that they might be reminded that these words are trustworthy and true. That there shall come a day when this ends. And this ends, this suffering, the earth and its creation, the heavens and earth, the separation will end because God says, I no longer will abide by this. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And did you catch the unity of the two? That heaven comes down from heaven. It comes down from where it is currently and it comes to the earth. And there God brings to us not only God's grace and God's word, but God's presence the glory of heaven for all time. And there, all of us have the opportunity to claim our rightful place in this kingdom, to be God's people, and God will be with us forever. No more separation, no more sin, no more suffering. When you envision that there will be a time where bodies are impervious to sickness and death and will not even have the ability to create tears and cry because there will be no need. 
a time with such a glorious vision has been given to us for days such as these. But not just when our commonwealth is reeling from violence, but on days when we as individual Christians and those with whom we break bread, those with whom we are bound as family and friends and neighbors, co-workers, fellow classmates, when these people are confronted with the reality of the sin of this world, we have been given this gift to bestow upon them. That God hears our pain. God hears our cries. God receives our mourning and says that I will wipe all of that away. And that those of us who desire to receive this gift, it is ours because of the grace of Jesus Christ. That God has already planned. All of the machinations that need to happen have already been put in place so that this shall be. And that, my brothers and sisters, is more powerful than any fear I could ever muster. The promise that there is something more than this today. Now, some of us are really blessed. We woke up this morning and we felt like the world was glorious. We felt like that God had truly blessed us and we came here to worship, to bask in God's presence, receive a taste of God's grace, and to celebrate the good things that we have. And hallelujah for that. All of us should be celebrating that there are those who are rejoicing in this moment. But because we are of Jesus Christ, because Jesus chose to cry and mourn with those who were mourning the death of Lazarus, because Jesus chose to go to those who were broken and fractured, those who had been cast aside and cast out, because Jesus chooses to eat with sinners and abide with those whose lives are not marked by celebration and joy, but pain and suffering, we magnify that too. And we recognize that we have been given this opportunity, and it is an opportunity, to be with those who suffer, to sit beside them, to walk alongside them, to serve them, and to assist them in their time of need. Because we all know that the longer we live, that will be our day too. There will come a day where we recognize that the pain and suffering that we always watched from afar and maybe even got a little close to will somehow come into our household. And that's when the glory of the gospel is truly something to behold. Because when we find ourselves in our moment of need, God has already planned that there will be those who will preach to us that we are not alone, that we are not abandoned, and will remind us of the truth of Revelation that there will be a day where our pain and our suffering shall cease. And when we choose to make disciples of Jesus Christ, we are giving them that. Not be afraid, be very afraid. But I am with you because I have caught a glimpse of this truth. And I want to give it to you in your time of need so that you don't feel abandoned into the darkness of death and pain. But instead, you realize that there is a light, and that light is Jesus Christ. I have seen it, and I want you to see it too. I want you to have it. I don't want you to dwell here in misery and in darkness and wandering in the wilderness of faithlessness. I want you to know that God has prepared a place for you, and God has sent people like me and you to those who need to see the light of Jesus Christ. That is what it is in the gospel for us to pursue this. We have been given this gift. And all of us will tell it in our own way. 
Because as glorious as chapter 21 is, that's not the end of Revelation. That's not the end of the story. It might come very close to being the back cover of our Bible. But every Christian disciple knows that our lives are gospel accounts. We are writing right now with our words, our lives, exactly our gospel account. The world reads with incredible rapture the gospel account of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the world sometimes fails to understand that there is a gospel account of Sarah. There is a gospel account of Doris. There is a gospel account of Trey. And these accounts are sometimes more vital to people in the midst of their suffering because they are tangible and real. They have a face and a voice and a name. They have a relationship with them. But we are inspired by the accounts that come before us. We are inspired to do great things because we have seen great things done. And oftentimes as we are growing in our own discipleship, we struggle with what we have to do. We wrestle with the idea that God wants something from us. Wouldn't it be nice if all you had to do was say, yes, Lord, I believe, and then you could go to brunch. But instead, God asks us to walk this path. Or as the Apostle Paul is fond of saying, run with perseverance. I hate running. I don't use hate very often. I don't like that word. But I really honestly and authentically despise running. If you see me running, don't talk to me. There's something wrong with me. I do not like running. I loved it when I read in Proverbs that only a fool runs when no one's chasing them. Therefore, I don't go jogging. So you can use the Bible for all kinds of great things. But we run this race, and we get tired, and we get waylaid, and sometimes we get discouraged. Sometimes we have tragedy like that of Virginia Beach strike our lives, and we think, whoa, I need a timeout. I need to take a break from this run. i got to just stop. But instead of pausing for a moment, refreshing ourselves, and getting back on the track, sometimes we just wander off. And as disciples, we are called back to focus on the path. And not only are we running this path, but you'll remember that John said to those as he was calling them forward to receive their baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, make straight these paths. As you're running the path, you have to do some work and make it straight. Can you imagine constructing a road that you're trying to run? What a ridiculous notion. And yet, this is what God has said to us. Because it's not each individual Christian doing it. We do it together. We build a path, a straight road, right to the kingdom of heaven, laying it brick by brick together. Because we refuse to let people suffer and wander off on the wrong side. We refuse to let people dwell in a dark tunnel and not see that on the other side is the promise of the kingdom of God, the forgiveness of our sins, and eternity with our maker, creator, sustainer, and redeemer. We refuse to sit idly by and let others suffer or focus solely on ourselves. Christianity is not a selfish religion. Hallelujah. It is a religion, a spirituality, a covenant that requires us to not only acknowledge other people in the body of Christ, 
but seek to be in ministry with them because we are willing to attempt to try to love people that we don't even like. Can we be honest about that for a moment? We are called to love people that under normal circumstances we would not even associate with, probably because we wouldn't like them. And it makes you think God must be sadistic to make you be in ministry with people you don't like. But you know what the glory is? The glory of having to be with people that you may not like is that God shows you things to love. God reveals to us that there are things about people that are glorious. And if we are willing to focus on that, then we can overcome our dislikes, we can overcome our moments of tension or our disagreements or our arguments and the rifts that would tear us apart. Because at the end of the day, do you realize that you are asking to spend eternity with these same people? You are asking God to allow you in to a place where you have no control over the guest list. You are asking God to allow you to bask for all time at a table where you didn't pick who has reservations with you. And so our work here is vital. Because we have to be willing to say, I will come in, Lord. I will live in a house with many rooms, with many people that I would never on earth choose to cohabitate with. But when kingdom of heaven comes, I am willing to abide in your abode. I am willing to eat every meal sitting at a table with people that I would never have in my dining room. I am willing to do things that I would never do in my own head and of my own mind, because you love me when I am out of my mind. You love me when I am so twisted and perverted by my sinful inclinations that you inspire me to love others. That is what the gospel has been telling us all along. And when people twist it and use it as a, as a fear motivator, they are actually doing a great disservice to God. Because one of the things that I used to struggle with when I would go and, and encounter worship in Brent Locks Baptist Church was that there were things that were very different from Methodism, very different. You know, we sing songs once through in Methodism. I used to sing songs in the Baptist Church like round seven. I'd be like, somebody needs to go up to that altar because we got a roast beef at home. It was a different thing. It was a different culture. And it worked for them. It just didn't work for me because what I started to notice was the more that I sat there and the more that I listened to a particular preacher they had at one point preach hellfire and brimstone and fear burning in hell, I used to go, but Jesus says different things. And Jesus seems to have incredible patience for these people who are so flawed. Now, I mean, Jesus, you know, being in human form, he had his moments of losing his temper too. Don't blame Jesus for that. Imagine if you had to wander with us for three years and your bare feet. Instead, Jesus shows us that there's this hope, there's this grace, there's this gloriousness along the way and offers us that. That's what's rich about Methodism, that we have an opportunity to offer somebody something wonderful, not make them afraid, but to give them a gift to show them what redemption looks like. God has given you a picture of what redemption looks like, and it is beautiful. 
Because those of you who know what death is like, those of you who have lost someone, those of you who know what pain in your earthly vessel feels like, those of you who have struggled with mourning and crying, you know just how glorious this promise is. And do you not want it for yourself? Do you not want it for those you love? And can we as disciples want it for people we don't like and we don't love yet? That's when we have truly started to embrace something. Yesterday, Bishop Weaver, our interim bishop, sat right here on this front pew for as we gathered here for his event, his bishop's event. And one of the things that he reminded us of is that as Methodists, we understand John Wesley's theology of going on to perfection. And he stood up and he turned around to the room and he said, how many of you have gone on to perfection? And everybody sat on their hands. And one of the things that I'm not sure that people could actually catch, because there was a little bit of giggling and laughing when he asked the question, was that you could hear some of us that were clergy answering the same historical question we're asked before we're ordained that says that we are in pursuit that we are earnestly pursuing that perfection. And I haven't obtained it. Lord knows I have not reached the point where I stop willfully sinning. Not that Christian perfection means that you never sin, but that you don't willfully sin, right? There's a difference between choosing to sin and accidentally sinning. I want to get to the point where I stop willfully sinning. That will save me an awful lot of embarrassment. It will save me an awful lot of pain and suffering. It'll save God and a lot of people an awful lot of pain and suffering. But I am not there yet. But ironically, as we were sitting here in this sacred space and he was posing this question to us, I thought, I can name about a dozen people in our family of faith that have. And they inspire me. They give me hope that, yes, I might get to that point. Because I have seen and glimpsed the glory of chapter 21 of Revelation. I have seen that. But now the, the challenge for us is to move beyond it, to go beyond 21 until we get to the kingdom, never to stop. Can we commit to doing that is the question that we ask ourselves. Are we just willing to read the gospel accounts and stop? If you're only going to read the first four chapters of the New Testament, the first four books in the New Testament anthology, you're going to miss out on a lot of good stuff. You're going to miss out on Pentecost. You're going to miss out on how the Apostle Paul reminds people that Christ is the greatest equalizer of all time. That because of what Jesus Christ has done, that people who had been rejected and cast aside for years in Judaism were now suddenly family. You're going to miss chapter 21 of Revelation that says that, yes, God hears you and God will eradicate mourning, crying, pain, and suffering for all time. That death will be no more. You're going to miss out on those things. What kind of crappy Christianity will you have if you miss out on that? Instead, God reminds us that all along this journey, all along the struggle to make disciples, to communicate with people just how wonderful Jesus Christ is, just how fruitful and glorious grace can be for us, and just how blessed God wants our lives to be, we have to be committed to the commission. 
and it's a struggle. But God isn't asking us to do it as individuals. God is asking us to do it as the body of Christ, to do it together, in pairs, in small groups, as a congregation. And each one of us has a role to play in that. But Jesus knew that it would be hard. Jesus knew that for some of us, just getting to chapter 21 is a struggle. Forget getting through chapter 21. Forget getting beyond it. Forget the entire rest of the walk into the kingdom. Jesus knew it would be hard. And that's why Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you orphaned when I ascend. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you a piece of God so that you will have strength to draw upon every day. And then as God had done from the beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end, he reminded us that along the way, when we need a rest, that God will meet us there and that God will care for us. So many times in scripture, when people are suffering and people are to the point where they think it's over, I cannot go any further, or when they're not even aware of just how bad it's about to get, God reminds them, come and eat. Stop for a minute and taste the goodness of God. The prophet Elijah experiences this. After his triumphant battle at Mount Carmel, Jezebel is so angry that he has slaughtered hundreds of her favorite priesthood that she says to Elijah, you better run because I'm coming for you and I will kill you. And Jezebel was a force to be reckoned with. And Elijah feared her. So he ran out to the wilderness and he was ready to hand in his orders and say, all right, God, take me now because this is over. She's coming for me and you better take me now. And God said, okay, before you quit on me, before you lose your mind any more than you already have, have a seat and eat. And then when Jesus knew that his apostles were on the verge of experiencing what would be the most traumatic and atrocious suffering and death in all of human existence, he drew them close to himself in an upper room and he said, let us eat, take and eat. This is my body, which will be broken for you. God knows that this is a difficult task. And so God has given us everything we could possibly need. We have guidance and exhortation in the scriptures. We have a piece of God's self for those of us who have been baptized and received a piece of that Holy Spirit. But no matter who we are, whether we have been baptized, whether we have read the scriptures or not, we have Holy Communion. This is a gateway to God. And God knows that if any of us gathered here today are going to seek to go on to perfection in Christian love, if any of us are going to seek to end our willful disobedience and sinning, if any of us are truly going to hear the words of Jesus Christ and strive to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus has taught us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we know that we are going to need some grace today. And so Jesus says, I will meet you here. And when you come here, I will give you all that you need. We are getting ready to experience something that the world will never know. It is to be entirely and completely forgiven. To know with every fiber of your being that everything that you have ever done before this moment is gone. God will forgive us today in a way that human beings are incapable of doing. God will wipe away every sin today in preparation in an attempt to give us the glimpse of chapter 21 
Are you ready to taste God's grace and encounter that today? Do you want for yourself to know, to know for even just a moment as part of a day that you can be restored, that the words of Genesis can be true for you today, that you were created in the image of the divine creator God, that you were endowed with dignity, that you were made to be a being of sacred worth, and today your sin, your mistakes, your guilt, your death cannot stand between that truth and you. That is the power of the communion table. That is what we are offering to people. And it's not about fear, it's about grace. And we give thanks for that. We give thanks for those in our midst, both laity and clergy and bishops, those that have come and gone and those that have yet to take their rightful place in the kingdom, reminding us that God's grace is not something that we have to yearn for out of fear, but it is something that we embrace because we are loved. And today we will taste that grace. We will encounter it with our physical forms that it may nurture within our spirits the ability to do the work that Christ has laid before us. What a glorious gift from our almighty God. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.